Okay, good evening everyone. So um, I want to bring tonight's message to you with a number of words and the first word is temperature. Temperature. Um, We're having a discussion in our house about what an acceptable temperature is um, for the autumn. Um, Certain members of the household um, seem to like it quite cool and other members of the household seem to like it quite warm. I've put a little sign on the thermostat with the arrow going one way saying less Christmas presents and the arrow going the other way saying more Christmas presents. Um, That one's free, by the way, if that's helpful to you. Um, But this is essentially a, a story about temperature. And Ezekiel 37 is one of those great passages that it's easy to read with our 21st century charismatic filter on. And it's a, it's a passage we're familiar with and we get super excited about it because, you know, there's a vision of awesome revival and there's prophetic words of life imparting power and there's the resurrection power of the spirit and the raising of a mighty unconquerable army. And we want to crack a Red Bull and get in the Holy Ghost and go, Amen. Um, And the thing is, we can forget sometimes to ask the important question, which is, why is this story here? Um, Some of you know I've been uh, working on some video stuff to put on YouTube, and I've been working on a strap line from the thing I do, but I thought, what? Uh, Sorry, I've been working on a... Uh, you know, kind of a mission statement for what, what we're doing, but I needed a strap line. I came up with this thing, context is king. Context is king. If you take a text out of context, all you're left with is a con. So, um, so here's the thing. Why was this story here? Well, you know, the Hebrews believe that God has a rhythm and everything flows from that beautiful, harmonious rhythm. Night and day, seven days of the week, the Sabbath, the seasons, the feasts, relationships with one another, our prosperity, love and so on. It all flows from being in rhythm with God. And if you align yourself with the rhythm of God, it will turn everything into beautiful living color. There will be life and there will be light and there will be increase. But if you live out of rhythm with God, relationships and occupations and family relationships and finances and love and everything else will look dark and grey and hopeless and will eventually lead to death, darkness and decrease. And the heart of Hebraic thinking was heaven and hell were not just future realities that every single person is walking towards. They're also realities to experience, be experienced now dependent on whether you're living in rhythm with God or not. And so the the kind of heart of the Hebrew spirituality was live in such a way that death, darkness and decrease diminish. And in such a way that life, light and increase flourish. That's the background thinking of how these guys thought. And so the story of Ezekiel 37 is actually set in the context of what happened way, way back in Deuteronomy 28. This is just before the Israelites come out of the wilderness into the promised land. And Moses reads the law to them a second time. And he says this, God is laying before you some choices today. The choice to love him or hate him. The the choice to follow him or reject him. The choice to obey him or rebel against him. The choice to be red hot for him. There's your temperature setting. Or ice cold to him. And I would want to say to us tonight that those choices are still in front of us. 
Those are the very choices he puts before us every day of our life. But with those choices came consequences. And for the Israelites, the consequences were either blessings and curses. And that's why I wanted you to understand the rhythm of God. I don't want you to think in some term of God sending something evil on the people of Israel when they get it wrong and sending something good when they get it right. This is about he just has his eternal flow. He's been grooving in that thing since before the end of time and he'll be grooving in it way into infinity. And when people align themselves in that, the slipstream of that is either blessing and if they step out of that, they're cut off from all of that blessing. And that's essentially what curse means. And so for the Israelites, it was, we'll choose blessings or curses. What's it going to be? And one of the consequences of living out of rhythm with God was that a nation of a foreign tongue would descend like a striking eagle. And 120 years before Ezekiel was even writing this stuff down, the 10 northern tribes of Israel had fallen and been taken into captivity under the sword of the Assyrians. Now, we read words like the Assyrians in our Bibles and we go, the Assyrians. They're from Assyria, and that's probably the limit of our knowledge. But these guys are incredibly nasty people. Like, they invented the parking fine. No, literally, King Sennacherib, he, he built these royal highways, and if you parked your donkey or your cart there, you were killed. It's the origins of the parking fine. Um, they had this unique way of skinning people alive and keeping them alive during the process. So, you know, like, when we read the Assyrians, I want you to understand this was really a big deal. Israel had walked away from God, they had adopted idolatry, and the result of that was the Assyrians came in, captured them, took them away, basically never to be heard again. But likewise, Judah, the two tribes in the south, eventually succumbed to the same thing, and they surrendered to the mighty Babylonian army of King Nebuchadnezzar. And all the leading families of Jerusalem were taken into captivity in Babylon, and for the next 20 years... Ezekiel, who was one of those captives, was writing prophecies back to those who remained in Jerusalem saying, please put it right. Please get it right. And Judah did not listen. And he preached about idolatry of the, the priests in the temple. He, he preached about shepherds who preferred themselves and were fattening themselves up rather than feeding the flock. He um, talked about the whoredom that the nation had wanting to be like all the other nations around them. And he especially put down those who were false prophets who were saying, no, don't worry, it's going to be okay. God's not going to do anything disastrous here. And in 586 BC, after a two-year siege, Jerusalem was totally devastated by the Babylonians. Her walls were destroyed, her gates were destroyed, and worst of all, the temple, the very place of God on earth, was completely obliterated, and then people were taken into captivity. The second word I want to bring to you tonight is the word bleached. Because as God's spirit took Ezekiel to that scorched valley of sun-bleached dry bones, there was no question as to what they signified. In his minds when he stood there, he was not thinking, oh, I wonder what this is a picture of. The entire nations of Israel and Judah were scattered and, and dissipated and were nowhere and had no strength. A far call from how they were under the leadership of people like David And Solomon, when there was this huge, mighty Israelite empire. 
They were a people far from God, far from home, and far from the blessing of God's rule and reign. And here's the interesting thing. Although these words were given to that people for that time, I think they echo just as profoundly in our time and space. I believe in the church. I believe the church is God's plan A for world transformation. In God's manifold wisdom, it's through the church that he is revealing his majesty. And that's really awesome. But the problem is the church, I'm not saying this church, but the church, and remember we are one body, is in a crisis. In the last 30 years, the church in the UK has shrunk by over 3 million people. That means every week, those leaving either by a wooden box Boredom or offence are exceeding those who are joining by 1,800. That's a mega church every week. Gone. And the bleached bones of sheep that have been savaged lay scattered far and wide across the land in the west. The church has been savaged by fundamentalism. You know, the kind of Pharisaism of the modern day. I was talking with Dave Carter. It must have been a couple of years ago. And we were talking about, you know what? We need to take the mental out of fundamentalism. <laughs> there are some crazies. And, and we were also agreeing we need to put the fun back in fundamentalism as well. But the church has been ravaged by that. But it's also been ravaged by liberalism, you know, where the, the world, where the church is mirroring the world rather than mirroring the word. It's been savaged by professionalism, where there's this kind of really hardcore lay and clergy divide, which personally, I believe, destroys the very concept of body ministry that Jesus envisaged and that Paul preached about when he says, when each one, dot, dot, dot. And then I believe the church has been ravaged by idolatry, which is worshipping anything that's not God as if it's God. I was reading recently about um, essentially our world that we are immersed in day to day is a world of self. Self-interest, self-worth, self-esteem, self-promotion, self-actualization. Those are the key mantras of the world we live in. But when it comes to self-interest, Jesus tells us seek First, the kingdom. When it comes to self-worth, we're told you were bought at a price. Our price is not set by what I think I'm worth. It's set by what he says I'm worth. And I'm actually worth much more than I think I'm worth because he gave up the most precious thing he had to bring me life. Our world is centering around self-esteem, and yet we were made and being redeemed into the image of God. Self-promotion is a really big thing in our world, and yet Jesus was very clear. You want to be great? You want to be the greatest? Cool. Be the servant of all. And when it comes to self-actualization, no, our self-actualization doesn't come from me having Wi-Fi and three square meals a day. It comes from seeing his kingdom come. 
that is the world we live in, folks. But the, the tragedy is that has started to flavor the church of our world. Graham Kirk prophesied this amazing prophecy at the European Leaders Advance in 2019. We spent some time on it um, over the last few months thinking about it. And it's an exciting prelude to a magnificent revival. I want you to hear that. What he prophesied was, it's time to be aware God is about to move in power. And it is an incredible prelude I love this sentence. The chaos of the world is simply the prime time for the kingdom. Now, he spoke that before anyone had even heard of COVID-19 and face masks and social distancing and hand wash. I'll just say it again. The chaos of the world is simply the prime time for the kingdom. I love that. But interestingly, his prophecy is framed in terms of repentance. Listen to this. There is a disconnect between my purpose and your expression. Now, he's talking to the church in Europe here. Glory cannot be seen in a people who are the same as everyone else. I am calling you up and out from your fear. From your weakness, from your unbelief, from your poverty spirit. God also says, stop living like a beggar, stop, stop praying like a widow. He says, my people will no longer be the obstacle to glory. No more surrendering your identity to the negative. Jesus says, I'm taking back my stuff. I died for it. I paid the price for it. It belongs to me. Like we're clinging on to stuff that we have no right to cling on to anymore. And he says a delighted people need to become a disciplined army. So when I was reading about Ezekiel and his army, I thought, ooh, that's interesting. And I love this prophecy because it says you might have known, not known what's coming, COVID-19, but it is the seedbed for something huge. Thank you for that word, David. That was great about a mighty wind blowing and shaking. And don't you feel shaken at the moment? It's been a really weird year. But something good's going to come out of it. But what I want you to know is what God is about to do is not actually about us. And it never has been. Just, just go backwards from Ezekiel 37 and you get Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. And it says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great, great name and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Oh, that's my prayer. That is my prayer for us, that we would be instruments in the hand of God, as he says, the the surface of the earth will know the reality of my glory. Like water covers the seas. And so as Ezekiel was confronted by this vista of death and carnage, he might well have been looking at, our world today, the church that we're part of today in the West. Now, here's the thing. I believe every single one of us are here tonight because we believe in a better reality than that. A better reality. You know, um, it's almost the 11th of November, just a little bit off. Seven years ago, me and my family uprooted 
everything we had and moved halfway across Kent to be here. Because we thought, if it's going to happen anywhere, (laughs) these are the kind of people it's going to happen amongst. And so when I say to you tonight, we're here because we believe in a better reality, I know because lots of you have made similar journeys to that. A more hopeful future, a more dynamic kingdom-minded church, a church walking in the mandate given at creation to cover this planet with the knowledge of his glory and to bring it into submission to the government of God. Isn't that cool? That's what we're about. And so I bring in my third word, which is speak. And Ezekiel is told to prophesy. And here's what I want to say. No matter how bleak the world might look, and even some aspects of the church in the West, failure is never terminal with God. Isn't that awesome? God asks the question of Ezekiel, "Uh, Ezekiel, is there any hope? Can these bones, these bones, you know, Ezekiel, what these bones are. You know what they've been up to. You know why they're lying bleached in the valley of death. Can these bones live? And the answer lies in the hands of a sovereign God. And Ezekiel says, you alone know God. I don't know this stuff. Like, your God, me not. You alone know. And God says, you're right, I do. Then prophesy. Speak life. And what I want to say to you is, I believe God has got a special mandate for us as believers, but I think particularly for us as a church, because this is part of who we are as a church, If we want to see a revival of dry bones in our day, in our culture, in our church, in our life, it begins by speaking words of life. Life. Recognizing God's will to have a mighty army, a kingdom of priests, who will represent him to the nations. It all begins by speaking words of life. And we have to recognize that light and life can be spoken into darkness and chaos. That's what God did at creation. He spoke light and he spoke life into chaos. And boom, it happened. Now, why is that important? It's because we're made in his image. Okay, you sound a bit underwhelmed by that. I'll try that again. Because we're made in his image. Come on, guys, this is huge. You're made in the image of the living one who is eternal and created everything that has ever existed. We need to recognize that light and life can be spoken into darkness and chaos, but we also need to recognize that life and death is in the tongue. I think particularly the British culture is very good at naming the things that are. Go on social media, open a newspaper, watch the news. I don't know who it was, somebody at the very beginning of the pandemic, I might have been, it might have been Alan Sugar or somebody like that, did a kind of public letter saying the British media have misjudged the tone of where the people of this nation are because they were taking us down that demoralizing, here's the bad news kind of route. 
And they could have actually been a very powerful force for good by saying, let's pull together. We can do this. There is hope. But they didn't. They chose the opposite message. We are too good in our culture at naming the things that are. Anyone can be a critic. All you need is two eyeballs and a mouth. Anybody can be a critic. But here's the truth. Romans 4.17. He calls things that are not as though they are. That's what Ezekiel's been asked to do. See these dry bones? There is... I remember as a pastor turning up at a hospice two minutes after somebody I knew had just died of pancreatic cancer. I had quite a lot of faith in that moment and I prayed this way, God, if any day is going to be the day that you're going to use me for resurrection, let it be today. It wasn't that day. But when you're looking at a skeleton, (laughs) the kind of faith you need to see that raised to life. It's a different kind of speaking life and light, isn't it? God calls things that are not as though they were. Can these bones live? Absolutely. But the journey starts by speaking life, not by complaining about the reality. So here's the challenge. In the words of the old rave song, Where's your head at? Where's your head at? Does God need to rewrite the hard drive and help you lose that file that's negative and speaking death and criticism and replace it with a new program that is life and light and hope and faith. The next word is rattle. It says he spoke and then he heard a rattling of bones. If we want to see a dry bones revival, see what happens next. There's a rattling noise as the bones come together. There's something really powerful in that. Because I just thought these were skeletons lying on the floor and they're clearly not. It's like if you've ever been on an archaeological dig when they discover like where people have died or been buried or a battlefield, it's just like bones. And the skill required to go in, oh, well, I think this bone over here actually belongs to this person over here. I mean, that, that's a pretty cool, pretty cool job. I think it probably be my second favorite job of all time if I had the option. But these bones come together. You know, diversity and unity is the key to true kingdom revival. Where the badge, denomination, stream, flavor, gift, or department that is your thing is not the issue. Jesus is. Where each person's distinctive has a place and their absence means we are all worse off for it. And I talk about the church in the West because God sees us as a body. So we may feel we are healthy, but actually the New Testament is very clear. Where one part of the body is suffering, the whole body actually suffers. 
And I want to appeal to you, be praying for the parts of our body where we don't see life and light. That we be praying for faith and hope and a fresh infusion of the spirit. The bones of the church need to come together. I was thinking about rattling. It is possible to rattle without any kind of kingdom output. You know, I got saved, it was probably right at the beginning of the 90s. And I met some people who'd been Christians a long time. And I discovered this thing called the kingdom of God and got quite giddy about it and excited. I thought I was like, wow, this is, I like, I just turned up because I didn't want to go to hell. And then there's all this stuff as well. This is like mad. I love it. And these people are like, oh, no, they've been preaching about that for decades. This country's going to see revival. Oh, no, not in our lifetime. And I realized that on the people around me was just a depression, a spiritual depression, because they'd been sold something for so long. There'd been a rattling, but there'd been no real coming together. And so I think another challenge is we need to make sure we're not just making the right noises. When I was a bit younger, before I was saved, I used to hang out with some people at the pub. And uh, there was one particular guy, and he was really good on um, a Sunday night when we would, you know, get together our last chance to have a beer before the new week. And he would forensically go through all the mistakes that the manager of Manchester United had made the previous day and how rubbish he was as a manager and how he hadn't a clue about football and what he should have done was put this player in that position and if he'd pulled this play and all of this, which sounded really clever and really impressive, except he was 20 stone, smoked 60 a day and drank about eight pints a night. We call that talking a good game. That's what rattling is. Rattling without real coming together is talking a good game. And what I want to say is, I think God has given this time to us. And it's a privileged gift. How many of us said over the last few years, oh, if only I had more time with God? And God's given us time to truly evaluate where we are. I think I've said this before recently. Some of us haven't liked where we thought we were because we thought we were somewhere else. And then God's actually showed us. It's called restorative discipline. The Bible's quite clear. God disciplines his sons and his daughters because that's an act of love. So there's a coming together. The next word is connected there's a difference between alignment and connection. I don't know if you know that. Okay? Um, so, at an archaeological dig, if you d- dig up a bunch of bones, you can line them all in line and they look like a human body. But if you go to pick up the hand, you will just walk away with the hand. <laughs> um, I'm sure Pete and maybe Dave Carter will tell you, medical college, they actually have skeletons where the bones are connected. They're kind of screwed together, aren't they, Pete? And young student doctors have lots of jolly japes with the skeleton and put them in cupboards and (laughs) to fall out on people, all that kind of thing. Um, There is a difference between alignment and connection. A medical skeleton is screwed together, but in this story, as he prophesies, we're told the bones come together and then... Sinews, that's, that's an ancient word for the word we think of as ligaments. Connect those bones. 
Ligaments are things that hold the bones and joints in place so each joint and limb can function. Colossians 2.19, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that comes from God. What's my point? It's really this. Joints cannot retain their form, function properly, flex and return, take any strain without the binding and connecting effect of ligaments. And there is a big difference between appearing aligned and actually functioning through connected relationships. At the beginning of lockdown, I was in tears for weeks because I wanted to be here in corporate worship. I really missed that corporate expression of worship. But as time went on, I realized there was another grieving that was going on in my life which was the grieving of intimate relationships with other brothers and sisters. There is something unique and special that happens when we gather en masse, but there's also something special and unique when we gather in the small and we are truly connected with one another and we knock the edges off each other as we live our Christian lives together and so forth. Here's another challenge for us. Maybe it's time to examine how we're connected I would hazard a guess to say most of us tend to love to hang around people who are a bit like us and enjoy the same things as us. And that's great. It's all right to have friends. Don't get me wrong on this. But actually there is something that comes from being connected to people who we wouldn't necessarily perhaps choose to because they bring something unique into our situation. Connected bones are actually the key to bodily strength. And that's my next word, strength, 37 verse 8. It talks of flesh coming upon the bones. And flesh is the body's musculature. Muscles provide the body's strength. And I believe we could liken our different areas of gifting, passion and character as muscle. And where muscles span beyond a single bone, a single person, a single Christian experience, there's immense leverage and strength that's exercised. Like, I can lift a dumbbell because my bicep connects this bone and this bone. can do the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing, I wish. And it's the genuine connection of the body's bones and its musculature that means the body of Christ has strength. Muscles produce strength by exerting their force across joints to different bones. We need to work off each other more. There is something that you guys bring to my life when your gift comes into my life. And there's something in my life that will change yours. Uh, An example of this was um, way, way back at the beginning of this year. It seems like a decade ago, we had the Kingdom Preaching Academy. And uh, David Webster and I were going to host most of that day and do all the teaching. And we were like, hang on, apostles, prophets, third teachers. So I invited Pete to come along. He came along, didn't he, Pete? And Pete stood up for 10 minutes and did that kapow thing that apostles do. And it was a totally different day because of it. If it had just been teachers, it would have been dry and dusty and a bit theoretical and all of that. But there was something that happened because Pete stepped in the room and brought what he is into that mix. Kaboom. But likewise, teachers can rub shoulders with evangelists. And we help evangelists think about what is the content of the gospel. And evangelists can learn stuff from pastors and teachers especially can learn stuff from pastors because actually 
we just proclaim truth and not worry about the consequences if it wasn't for pastors. But there are more gifts than just those five. Those are five that are given to the church to build her up. But all of us in this room have a unique blender mix. And what you have, I can't do without and vice versa. And so that it needs saying no one brother or sister amongst us has the monopoly on gifts. We need to be connected. And I believe God is giving us the time at the moment. I long for the day we can gather the whole body here in one screaming firework, letting off you woohoo worship service. And I pray that day is soon. But until we get there, I want to encourage you, be connecting. Who can I phone? Who can I email? Who can I encourage? Who can I bless? Image. Finally, we're told that these bodies are covered with skin. The dressing that makes the reality of a working body presentable. You know, for too long the church didn't care how she looked. When I got saved in the 90s, church was cheesy. I'm really sorry. That might sound like a damning critique. But, like, if the church could have done something cheesy, it would. And it did. And we had a problem getting people to events because they knew it was going to be cheesy. Something's happened over the last few years. And whereas we never cared about how we looked, now I think the church cares very much how it looks. And we have, you know, kind of slick logos and internet presence. And not just us. I mean, like, pretty much every church is streaming their Sunday services now. They're out there in the public. It's not behind locked doors anymore. But we have to be so careful that it's not just image in our lives. And no substance. You see, skin ultimately only reflects what's under the skin. And you can look skin deep beauty and have something underneath that really doesn't support that at all. And I think what's going on in this story is there's ligaments, there's bones, there's muscle. And the skin is the presentable edge of that. But the reality is there under the surface. Now, bear in mind, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the church. It's a challenge to all of us as Christians in the West. But this is where I want to land. Even if we put all these things in place, Ezekiel says, all we have is a pretty corpse. One thing is still missing. The most vital thing. breath, wind. In fact, it's mentioned nine times. It's that Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit, which in the Bible always means life. And if we want to see a mighty army raised from dry bones, it cannot happen without the supernatural intervention of God by his spirit. How many Christians in the West walk without the presence and power and not even aware they don't have the presence and power? How many of us are too satisfied with the meager portion we experience already? And I want to give some context to that. Okay? Hold your finger out. I want you to imagine on the end of your finger, one millimeter cubed of God's presence. Okay? That's a pretty small amount of it. Okay? Bearing in mind he fills the entire universe. Yeah? One millimeter cubed. If you had that, you are the richest person in the universe. Do you know that? But you are also a pauper. Because he is infinite. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? We have everything. And yet there is so much more. There is so much more. There is so much more. This is one of the things God's been doing personally in me over this time. I had come to rely on Sunday meetings as my dose of the presence. Because it was easy. You walk in, it's like being dropped into hot water. (laughs) And actually over this time, I realize I've had to forge my own path. I've had to do the work, not rely on dropping into somebody else's pond. And so I want to hop out of Ezekiel to finish, to a story in 1 Samuel 4. The backstory is the defeat of Israel at the hands of the Philistines and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. It's in 1 Samuel 4, 17 and 18. And a messenger is sent to Shiloh where Eli, God's priest, is sitting at the gate waiting for news. And he's been told, there's been a defeat. Eli has no reaction. He's told, the Israelites have run. There's no reaction. He's told, there have been heavy losses on the battlefield. He has no reaction. He says, your two sons died in that battle. No reaction. And then he's told the Ark of the Covenant was captured and he falls off his chair in shock and devastation and breaks his neck. A small wooden box is captured and he dies from shock. What's going on? Well, that box was literally God's Wi-Fi router on earth. Between those two cherubim, that was the geographical centre of God's manifest presence on earth. And when they lost the box, it was like they lost God. In fact, there's a baby born that day called Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. That presence was lost and now in enemy hands and it grieved the priest to death. And I think one of the things that God is up to at the moment, I love that picture, David, of the wind blowing is God is challenging us and reminding us his power and presence is the very thing that's going to bring new birth, new life, resurrection, new ministries, fresh expressions, the kingdom expanding, and so on. Are you challenged or moved by the seeming lack of power and presence in his big wide church? Or maybe your own life? I want to encourage us to step into that place where we are challenged and moved by it. Because in the Bible, the glory, the presence is everything. It's everything, folks. It is absolutely everything. Adam and Eve in the garden, God walked with them. There was the presence. Jacob's ladder, huh, God was in this place and I didn't know it. Samson, the spirit of the Lord, left him and he was not aware. That's the saddest verse in Bible, I think. Moses, unless your spirit goes with us, God, into the promised land, I'm not going. I want to stay where you are. Gideon, we're told, God put Gideon on like a glove. That's what the Hebrew says. The presence of God put him on like a glove. Obed-Edom, who looked after the ark when it was kind of on its way back to the Israelites, God blessed everything he had. Why? Well, because God's presence was there. And at the incarnation of Jesus, we're told he will be called Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. John, he tabernacled, he made his dwelling amongst us. And then on that very first Pentecost, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit has a change of address. It moves out of the temple and it moves into the new temple. Could we just take a moment to engage with God's presence? Can I encourage you to stand? God, if we're honest, I don't think anybody in this room would say that they would have chosen this last six or eight months. But God, it's been a great leveller. It's been a great reminder. It's been a great litmus test for us to discover who we really are. It's a good challenge for us to step up to become who you want us to be so that our expression does align with your purpose. God, I thank you that you've called us to come together, to be connected, to run our ministries and our gifts and our strengths and our weaknesses off of each other, to have a skin on that truly represents you to the world, but all of that is pointless without your breath blowing on us. God, I love that you raise a mighty army. And God, if all the prophetic words that are coming in are true, that you are going to use this to usher in a mighty move of God, not just in our nation, but across Europe and the rest of the world, then we say we're all in. But we can't do it without your breath. We can't do it without your presence. So would you blow Holy Spirit afresh on us? God, where we are tired and listless from just the uncertainty of day on day, week on week, would you bring your refreshing joy? Would you bring the strength that is the joy of the Lord? God, would you ignite what you have placed in us by your life-giving breath? Would you birth new incentives and initiatives? Would you give us bigger dreams and the resources to see them come to be? Would you do all of that, God, by blowing the wind of your prophetic, life-giving presence upon us afresh? Yeah, just welcome him in. Hmm.